safer sex. Intercourse. Condoms. Sexually transmitted infection. HIV. Sexual health. Treatment. Condoms. Sexual attractive. Sexually transmitted this is Hepatitis Awareness Week 2021. For this podcast, we'll be taking a look at some of the great work being done to eliminate Hepatitis C in New South Wales. To discuss the work being done in prisons, I'm joined by Marion Bloomfield, who's the Clinical Nurse Consultant in Sexual Health and Hepatitis, for the Justice Health and Forensic Mental Health Network. I'll then be joined by Julie Page, who's the Clinical Nurse Specialist at the Needle and Syringe Program in the Nepean Blue Mountains Local Health District, to discuss the complementary work happening out in community. But first up is Marian. So welcome to the podcast, Marian. Thanks, Tom. It's great to be here. Can you tell me a bit about yourself and what led you to want to do the work that you do? Okay, so Tom, I've been uh, working in nursing for over 40 years now. Initially, I trained, I did my nurses training back in the day at St Vincent's at Darlinghurst. And I think this experience is where it's taken me to today. And um, working at St Vincent's was my first experience of working with people with drug and alcohol issues and mental health issues facing homelessness and people looking after people with other sort of significant health issues, especially in their early life. I've done lots of different things in my career and and worked in lots of different places, but I came to work in Justice Health in 2001, just the year after the Olympics. I'd moved um, back to Sydney and I'd worked in the community for a significant um, number of years. And I didn't want to return to hospital nursing. I think I have a great love of working in the community and, you know, sort of getting bigger depth of experience, I suppose, in people's lives and their health. So I was looking for something that was community-based and I saw an ad in a paper for, you know, looking for registered nurses to work over at Civil Water Women's Jail. And um, I thought, oh, well, that that would be interesting because, you know, jails always seem to fascinate most people and myself. Mm. So I thought, "Mm, I'll apply. Some people listening to the podcast might be wondering what it's like day to day. So could could you walk me through like an average day working in a prison? Yeah, I don't think there is an average day working in a prison. I suppose the bare bones of it is that usually in a prison, the patients will be released from their accommodation units um, of a morning into the to you know recreation areas they may um, have their breakfast things like that the nurses generally then will go out and give the patients any medication they have and you know patients are able to exercise or you know just do their recreation etc during that time we might do things like opiate antagonist therapy so patients may have to have methadone or their buvidel so you know it's about fitting these things in so there's yeah a great movement across our centers and people also move from different centers depending on whether they're on remand or whether they're sentenced they may if they're on remand they may stay closer 
to, for example, a metropolitan centre. If they're sentenced, they may go out to a country jail, depending on their classification. So there's certainly a lot of movement going on within a custodial environment, which I was unaware of until I started working in the environment. So I sort of like to think of, you know, a jail is really like a town, I suppose, where people are, you know, doing all the normal things that other people do, but it's just within the confines of a um, different environment, I suppose. Yeah, fantastic. And this is Hepatitis Awareness Week. So could you tell us a little bit about, you know, firstly, what is hepatitis and and why is it a particular concern in, in the setting that you work in? Okay, sure. So hepatitis comes in many forms. We have the viral hepatitis, which include hepatitis A, B and C. And we have non-viral hepatitis, such as alcohol-induced hepatitis, or it could be hepatitis due to fatty liver disease. So hepatitis presents in um, many different ways and because of many different things. Hepatitis is a concern because in people in general, in their daily lives, as it can cause things as simple as chronic fatigue, right through to advanced liver disease, where the function of the liver fails, right through to cancer of the liver. So it really can have a significant impact on patients' health. The concern in prison is that the prevalent, and when I talk about hepatitis in prison, I'm mainly talking about hepatitis C, although we do still have a significant number of people with hepatitis B. But I suppose our focus in jail is eliminating hepatitis C. So I tend to talk a lot more about hepatitis C. So I apologise ahead of time for that. So in the prison environment, our prevalence rate of hepatitis C is approximately 13%. So, and the reason why hepatitis has been a problem in prisons is that we don't have a needle exchange program. That's just not available in prisons. And patients share injecting equipment. So therefore, the chance of getting hepatitis C is increased. We do have FinCol available to clean injecting equipment prior to patients using their injecting equipment. So while there's a burden of disease in prisons, it's, it, it, it will also be difficult to decrease the prevalence of hepatitis C in the general community because people go in and out of jail and go back into their community settings and and you know, can take that hepatitis C out into the community with them. So while this is going on, while patients are going in and out of jail, the hepatitis C is sort of being transmitted, you know, to and fro. So it's really important that we get the hepatitis C prevalence rate in jails decreased because that will have a significant effect on the prevalence of hepatitis C out in the community. Within jails, there's no NSPs, which, you know, are a very successful program outside in the, in the community. Is there any is there any work being done or any plans in the future to introduce something like that? Or is that just something which is a, a bit too controversial? I, I think it is controversial. And um, I think that it is pretty much on hold. I know that up in Canberra that they were looking at doing a trial of an NSP, but unfortunately, for whatever reason, that never actually occurred. Mm-hmm. 
And what are some of the programs that you run in prisons to ensure that you do treat people who need to be treated while they're there? Yeah, sure. So Justice Health and Forensic uh, Mental Health Network, we run a lot of different programs to, you know, assist in eliminating hepatitis. Some of the things that we do in particular with hepatitis B is, is vaccinating patients for hepatitis B. So we screen patients um, for hepatitis B and if they need vaccinating we vaccinate people. We find that they have um, hepatitis B we also make sure that we monitor these people and if they need treatment get them onto treatment appropriately. So regular testing for bloodborne viruses and sexually transmitted diseases is a really important part of care. There are other programs that we run with regard to elimination of hepatitis C, we've done what we call the HYPE program, which is Hepatitis in Prisons Elimination Program, where we um, focused on the elimination of hepatitis C in designated jails. So what we did is we went to, I think there was in total 10 to 12 jails that we, we tried to eliminate hepatitis C in. So we tested as many people who would come forward as possible. And then any of those people who, who were positive for hepatitis C, we got them into treatment or if they were going back out into the community, we referred them on to treatment. So that was quite an ex a uh, successful program that we, we ran. And also, we have also have a nurse-led model of care within Justice Health. Fantastic. And could you tell me a little bit more about that uh, nurse-led model and, and how it works? Yeah, so with our nurse-led model of care, what happens is patients are screened, often by the primary care nurse, and what happens then is the patient will, if, if the, we get positive results back, the patient's then handed over to the public sexual health nurse who will do the pathology workup and education with regard to patients having treatment and incorporating harm minimization into that consultation. So we talk to the patient about having treatment, what it involves, et cetera, et cetera. And then what we do is we then decide who we're going to refer the patient to. So patients who are treatment naive, that's those patients that have never had treatment before. And if they are, you know, generally fit and well, we refer them on to the nurse the, one of the nurse practitioners to 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 assess and to write a script up if if they're happy for that to occur if you know everything looks right. So our public sexual health nurses do most of the work up. They do fibre scans right there in the centres, and so we it's pretty much a one stop shop. And then you know our patients are referred on. If patients have had treatment before or they've got health conditions which you know, they may need some more investigation. They will get actually referred to one of our, our visiting medical officer prescribers. So they may be patients, you know, that have other what we call comorbidities or other health problems and they may need, you know, a bit of extra workup. So we sort of got, you know, a few different pathways and lots of people involved in the treatment of patients. So we've really got quite a slick streamlined you know model that um, we work to and it just you know each year I think it gets better and better and we get better at it and I think the results are you know speaking for themselves. 
Yeah, I mean, that sounds like a fantastic way of reducing the prevalence of hep C, you know, in jails and in the community, like you say. And, you know, it's great that there are the new hep C treatments that can cure the majority of people. But I, I guess, you know, the word is still getting out there to some people and they might not have heard about it necessarily. So have you, have you found that a lot of people have been taking it up? If, if... Definitely. So the, with the introduction of new, the director acting antivirals in 2016, prior to this, treating patients was quite arduous on both staff and patients. So prior to 2016, Justice Health was treating approximately 100 patients per year. So with the introduction of the direct acting antivirals in 2016, we've been able to treat more people, the highest number being approximately 1,450 in one year since the direct acting antivirals. So that was one year that we treated those patients. In the, the financial year that's just finished, we were able to treat 904 patients in that year, which we think was pretty good going, given that we had, you know, lots of things going on with COVID and quarantine and isolation and staff being redeployed, et cetera, et cetera, with the COVID pandemic. So I think, you know, given given the difficulties, 904 was a pretty good number to be able to treat last year. Yeah, it sounds fantastic. I think the word... Yeah, I think um, also that the word on the street is that the new treatment is so much easier, Tom. The workup requires, the sorry, the workup and the monitoring of people on hep C requires, you know, less blood, t- blood tests. And that's a blessing when venous access is difficult on patients. So that's a really good thing. The treatment, you know, is only tablets and no injections. So that's, you know, a very positive thing. And also the side effects of medications are, you know, very minimal now. So that's, you know, quite, quite a, you know, remarkable from where we were back in the interferon days to today, where, you know, the, the side effects of treatment are really minimal. So it's a great thing. Yeah, fantastic. And do you also use other methods like like dried dried blood spot testing? Yeah, we've been doing that over the last few years as well, probably the last three years, and we will continue to do that as well because it's a great test. I mean, point of care testing is it's a little bit expensive, and sometimes we don't really need those results so quickly. So dry blood spot is a great thing because we don't have we can do the finger prick and it goes onto a little cotton card. We don't have the time restraints we do with the point of care testing, and we can do as many of those in a day as we you know as we need to. So there's no like that that little card just is dried and then it's posted off to the hospital pathology to have it um, processed. So there's to- no time limit on it. And usually we have those results back within two weeks. So that's really good for patients at jails where, you know, healthcare is probably not as accessible, but more for patients that are 
sentence maybe more long term so that that we've got plenty of time to test those patients and get them onto treatment so it also has a very important function um, within our system as well so yeah we're sort of covering a lot of different bases and we you know we still do do screening with regard to conventional blood draw as well as doing dry blood spot and point of care testing. So we've sort of got three different um, methods of testing patients at the moment. So I think that they all complement each other and it's, you know, just keeping that momentum up and just keeping testing people. And hopefully we'll see that prevalence um, decreasing over the next few years. Thank you very much for being on the podcast today. That's a pleasure, Tom. So hopefully, you know, our listeners have got a little bit of knowledge out of that. And, you know, treating people for hepatitis within the custodial um, environment is really at the forefront of our thoughts. And, you know, I think the staff remain very committed to making sure that that happens within the custodial setting in New South Wales. And next up, I'm joined by Julie Page to talk about some of the work being done out of needle and syringe programs in the community. Anyway, can you see that nice drug poster in the background there? That's my old yep. uh, Weed with Roots in Hell poster of people injecting marijuana. Oh. <laughs> it's a poster from the 50s. Okay. <laughs> it's a ripper. Yeah. Yeah. One of those, uh, what was that old video? Reefer Madness? Reefer Madness, things? yeah. 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 All those things. Uh, can you tell me a bit about yourself? Well, I've been a nurse for a very, very long time. And obviously I was nursing during the 80s and a lot of my friends died of HIV during that time. And then I did some mental health studies and eventually ended up in Western Sydney in 1998 as the first nurse on the needle and syringe program ban in the area which was very exciting. The primary outlet at St Mary's had recently been closed and the service had to go mobile. And um, I'd never worked in a needle and syringe program before or been in one, but uh, it was all a learning curve. We used to park at St Mary's Station for a couple of hours every morning and then further down the road a couple of hours uh, the other days and clients would come to us to get their equipment. And we lived like that for five years out of a van. So it meant I really got a chance to get to know the clients. The only I didn't have any equipment. It was just a plain van. It had an esky and fold-up chairs and needles. And the clients sort of get to know the staff on the van, obviously. I still see those same people today, 23 years later. Uh, and I couldn't do anything for them. I, I didn't even have a, a sink. I didn't have any way to wash my hands. I didn't have any dressings. We had a mobile phone and we were so thrilled with ourselves that we had a mobile phone so i used to just say to people oh yeah you need to keep taking those antibiotics or oh yeah you should see a doctor about that that's that's going black but it did mean that when we finally um, found a place to live as in south court here at Nepean Blue Mountains at Nepean Hospital, I had a really good idea of what i wanted to be able to do for the clients and at that stage my main concern was wound care we had a lot of people that were injecting methadone and normosin at the time. In 1999, butterflies and barrels were removed from needle and syringe programs. So that meant a lot of people um, switched, more people switched to groin injecting. 
and that ended up with the uh, horrific venous ulcers that we still see some people with today and that was one of the key things that I could see was an obvious need and you know always the pro the program is about preventing the spread of bloodborne viruses but at that stage there was nothing we could do for people with them bloodborne viruses really other especially not on a van in a car park so things have evolved since there moved in got another nurse started doing vaccinations I did a little bit more study and work and started doing uh, STI checks then when the new direct acting antivirals came out we realized there was a chance to actually do something about bloodborne viruses so Julianne and I studied up and did fibro scan training and brushed up our pathology skills so that we could take bloods and do fibro scans and help our clients get onto the new hep C treatments. So so why did they stop providing butterflies and things like that? Was it just a funding? No, or? I think it was specifically to prevent the injection of methadone and okay. St Mary's in Western Sydney was the methadone injecting capital of Australia. I mean, other, other states didn't even have methadone, I don't think some of them, but yeah, it was a very big issue and there was a lot of public injecting in St Mary's and, you know, it still seems strange to me. I still have people come in every week and ask for butterflies and barrels. We have not been able to hand them out since 1999. And that was, you know, it's the sheer volume of the, the methadone when people are injecting it and they need to mix water with it. Uh, what are some of the trends you see with hepatitis in the, in the area that you're working up in Menipee and Blue Mountains? Uh, it's just our regulars, I think, and they, the access to after-hours equipment is crucial. And it's, it's not just access to fit packs. People inject things with other things other than one meal. So the access to, you know, barrels and tips at least. And we do have a, a large performance and image-enhancing drug population. So a significant proportion of that is guys doing steroids, um, all the women seem to be doing tanning drugs and it's like at that moment at the moment that cohort doesn't seem to have hep c but that's good that is good but we wouldn't want them to have hep c do, do you find as much so, like, like needle sharing in those communities like i'm not i'm not sure i think that a lot of them are very conscious about the needle sharing but a lot of them are also completely naive when it comes to injecting technique mm -hmm. and so one person might be the doctor for the lot. Actually, I rang a bunch of clients the other day and dropped around. This wasn't steroid clients. I dropped around and, and I heard the old phrase, oh, he's, he's doctor and so-and-so up there. And I cracked up because it's just just such an old phrase. Oh, he's doing, the, he's doing the doctor on that one up there. It's like, he's helping him have a shot. So I think it's the, when other people get around in any situation, it's more risk of transmission or slip-ups or accidents happening. And that's the same thing with the, the performance in image enhancing drugs. It'll be carelessness and contamination rather than actual sharing. Several of us started here in 1998. So Felicity was one of the ones. She was working with a lady called Trish Preston and developed the Safe Injecting Quiz, which is a snowball sampling thing for young people to ask them about safe injecting. And I think that was about 2000 and 2001 or something like that. And I remember she had a lot of trouble getting the incentives approved by the health department as it was then. But that project won awards and, and she got the, the idea to see that, you know, incentives really do work. And then uh, later after that came the deadly liver mob, which is the Aboriginal focused uh, 
one where people educated receive a voucher and they can go and educate their friends and bring them in to you know be tested on that knowledge and receive a voucher and I know that's rolled out in several local health districts now and that's been an incredibly effective way of recruiting people into testing huge numbers of Aboriginal people into testing and treatment and then after that we sort of and I think basically everyone's doing some kind of incentive work now and let's face it we all come to work for incentives they they do work then we did positively hep which was when the first direct acting antivirals came out and I really did like positively hep because it got us a chance to say to all the old clients right so now we can do something for you are you positive you've got hepatitis which was you know at that stage very few people that we were talking to weren't aware they had hepatitis, you know, it wasn't a big surprise to most of them. They were aware that they had hepatitis and so they were the sort of easy ones to um, to link into treatment or to provide treatment for. Whereas now it's sort of, you know, four or five years later, it's a little bit harder to find quite so many people in one spot. And and I suppose that ties into the other approach, but that sort of snowballing approach that you're doing where, where Snowballing and recruiting, yeah. yeah. And I know um, newer often do that. They... Uh, provide incentives for people to bring people in and it it is um, very effective it gets a little hard to keep track of who's referred who and what's going on but bringing bringing people in and and frankly most of the clients will you know even if there's not a gift voucher for them involved they're happy to see their mate get a gift voucher you know so it all sort of works out and they recruit family members and you know people in other areas and stuff like that but it it does work very well we've got i don't know how many folders of vouchers and things we've been through over the years but it's all been money very well spent you know like spend five thousand dollars on vouchers and forty five thousand dollars on pathology Yeah, fantastic. And uh, I mean, I guess the dried blood spot testing makes that a lot easier to do that, that outreach work. Have you it been, does indeed. <laughs> have you been finding... It does it, indeed. Yeah. Have you been finding you need to sort of support a lot of people to to do that process or have people been pretty happy oh, to, to take it home and do their own? Me. No, we we do the, the DBS for them and, mm. and just the registration phase is something many of our clients wouldn't be able to manage because they don't have internet access or computers or anything like that. Mm. Now we do the DBS, bring it back, register it, post it off, and then and then the, the fun starts. Some people I can't begin to count the number of hours we've spent supporting them to get them onto treatment and throughout treatment. I mean one man I tested at a homeless drop-in place last year somewhere. It took took six months to get on treatment. And in that time, he had two admissions to mental health, three admissions to hospital. Um, I think a couple of near suicide attempts. We've dropped three or four food hampers off to him, transported him to and from hospital for other matters. And he's finally just about to finish treatment this week, but that was a huge effort of all these other, you know, he's got massive other health issues, you know, congestive cardiac failure, kidney disease, mental health issues, depression, you know, schizophrenia. So it's it's all a bit tricky. And then that's complicated by the fact that he doesn't have any transport and he lives where there's no trains. So arranging transport for clients and um, appointments takes up a bit of time. Some, some of the clients are still quite 
quite easy and, and simple to get onto tre treatment. Some of them are still very, very scared of the side effects uh, of treatment. We've, we've got a young couple here. They have a, a four-year-old son and they both were pretty well aware that they had hepatitis C, but even though we, we like to treat couples or family members or, or networks together whenever possible, they adamantly refused to both go on treatment together because they have a four-year-old and they were worried that something would happen to one of them and they didn't want to both be incapacitated at once. And I mean, one's, one's finished now, one's just about to, to start treatment. There were no mishaps, but it's obvious that the fear and, and the horror stories of the old interferon treatment are still around in the drug using population. Do you think that's beginning to change? Like are there more peer networks and conversations about the, the new treatments and how effective they are? I know we'd like it to change. And I, that's where peers do come in. It's like because I might look a bit scruffy, but they, the clients do know I'm a nurse and they're much more likely to believe, believe someone who has been through treatment than me saying, most people don't get any side effects. You know, it's like, yeah, I can... <laughs> Nobody has the right to tell you how you feel. So it, it's good, particularly having peers that have been through treatment, other clients that can pop in and, and give, you know, recommendations. It's like, oh, no, I had a little bit of a headache for two or three days and and then, you know, I was all right after the past, first week or something. It's good to have people that are able to give the lived experience of the hep C treatment. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and everyone is very pleased not to have the... Uh, liver biopsy anymore that was a big uh, drawback for many people mm -hmm. as I can you know well believe I'm sure it would be horrible so yeah that, that I think the message is getting out there there's been a lot of branding and and messages and things about it um, so yeah I think we just keep keep going one thing that does sort of annoy me quite a bit is the number of distressed people that present here after being told by a doctor somewhere that they've got hepatitis when they don't. So yeah. they've had an antibody test and they rock up here in tears or, or very anxious. And some of these people, well, obviously they, you know, they must've had risk factors in the past to have had hepatitis C antibodies, but none of the doctors ever believe them when they say, oh no, I haven't used for five or 10 years, this, that, and the other, and, you know, even though they might've seen our liver clinic cnc you know earlier in the year and received a you know all clear you know clear of hep c blah 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 pcr negative the doctors just do an antibody test and they go oh no you've got it again you must have been using it. it's like they haven't please i mean i do like treating you know treating those people because they don't have to be treated you know i just give them the good news no here's your results and we'll get our doctor to write your doctor a little letter but I think there's there's a real issue in the health system if everyone goes into hospital in emergency or in mental health and they have a hep C antibody test and it's like why why <laughs> why are you doing the antibody test because nobody treats it's just like oh yes they've got hepatitis C so they there's no intention to do anything about it there's not much knowledge of what can be done about it and it's just sort of a routine it's like oh yeah they've got hep C you know, drug user, boom, boom. Mm -hmm. So I'd like that to change. Yeah. And is there more education for GPs and that sort of thing getting out there as well? I suppose it's different in in each local health district. Yes, the GPs and it's, it's the GPs. It's also the junior. Like, I think 
getting to the junior doctors going through and um, as they do their, their residency in the hospital is one way of contacting them. And then to be, to be quite realistically honest, if there's a junior doctor and a senior nurse in a mental health ward, the junior doctor's gonna do the bloods that the senior nurse tells them to anyway. So, so it's also the nurses. I think, you know, everybody's got their, their specialty field and, and hepatitis C is, is not on the radar of 99% of people, you know, it's like, oh yeah, we know about that. That's, that's blood and drug uses sort of stuff. And very few of them even, you know, the, the rest of the nurses even know that there is um, a new treatment or that hep C can be cured. So it's, it is a matter of, it takes a while for the, for the knowledge to catch up with people, I guess, but it's ongoing and, and every local health district has their champions. So I'm sure it will eventually catch up. And uh, I suppose the, the statewide strategy now is uh, pushing towards eliminating hep C in New South Wales, mm -hmm. which is very exciting. Um, 2028, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you think are the, some of the major barriers uh, to achieving that? And uh, I mean, do you think we're on track to achieving that? Hmm. I know there's been mathematical modelling and, and revision of targets and things like that. You know, we, we don't know who we have. We don't know who we don't know, basically. So it's always a bit difficult to, to pin your faith on on a calculation. I, I think we could be on track. I know there's, you know, point of care testing is something that's sort of going to accelerate things for some people. And the fact that so many people are now going out and looking, actively looking for people to treat. Mm. But, but what is needed is, you know, in our area, and I'm sure in areas like far west, transport, transport transport to appointments and it's like you look up people's clinical records here at the hospital or something and you see you know what what do they put dna did not attend dna did not attend dna did not attend and once they've did not attend it a few times they're sort of like pushed to the very end of the list and it doesn't matter why they didn't attend they didn't and how much of your work, I guess, is that more holistic kind of uh, support yeah. for people? Yeah, so housing, legal aid, domestic violence, sexual mm -hmm. assault, do work development orders because we just don't have the capacity but assisting people in those sort of things. And, and then, as I said, some of these clients we have known for 23 years. Mm -hmm. So we're, we're like family to them, you know. So it's, it's with their first point of call. And these, they're, you know, they may not be using as much or they may not be using steadily or they may not be using at all but they still rely on us for for support in so many ways thank you very much for being with us on the podcast today julie okay thanks for having having me thomas and i hope everyone has a happy healthy and safe hepatitis week This has been the Sydney Sexual Health Centre podcast for Hepatitis Awareness Week 2021. To stay up to date with the latest information about sexual health, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter and LinkedIn. And if you like this podcast, don't forget to share and subscribe.